going to turn to God's Word, and uh, if you are visiting for the first time, I kind of semi-apologize, and I say that because we're in the middle of a series, and so we're our third week in, and so we are uh, looking at the book of Revelation, but again, not just for the purpose of signs and sensationalism, but really to better discern where we as the people of God fit into God's timeline in these last days, that we be a people who discern uh, not only the days in which we live, which are very important, but just as important that we begin to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing in his church, what he's speaking to us today, what he's doing in the hearts of God's people, what he's doing in, in churches around the world, and I think it has very much to do with uh, the times that we are moving into, but of course also a very practical application to where we are today. I really hope that as you come to church, at least here at Glad Tidings, that you're refreshed and you're encouraged and you receive ministry, but that you also just have a renewed sense of purpose, that as you leave this place, there's a whole week full of, of opportunities that the Holy Spirit has to minister through us to those around us, and so that you really are gripped afresh with this sense of purpose of what it really means to be a child of God, that we are free and we are to minister freedom to others. Well, you may recall last week um, that I mentioned uh, when Vanessa, my wife, and I were in Israel back in the winter that we had an opportunity to visit what is called the uh, Temple Institute. Um, I asked that they put that on our tour because uh, I'd been uh, looking at that for the last few years. The Temple Institute essentially was charged by the Israeli government to recreate all of the uh, temple garments, all of the utensils, everything that is needed for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And as I mentioned last week, uh, one of the individuals who was uh, uh, given uh, the tour or whatever uh, spoke to him after, and I said, when do you plan to build the temple? He said, uh, we do plan to begin construction in 2022. And so, again, times can change. That's, that's man's plans. Uh, who knows what's on the horizon? But I just kind of, I found that kind of fascinating. But when we came to the end of the tour of all the implements and, and the, the priest's garments and all the things that are in the temple, um, they showed a video that I want to show you now before we get into the message, just a three-minute video. And this is created by the uh, Temple Institute, and it's a, uh, an architect's rendering of the temple plans that are all there. In other words, everything is ready for the temple to be built. All they need, of course, is the go-ahead and they need the location. Uh, the go-ahead, rather, is interesting because just a, a couple of weeks ago when Israel had their elections, uh, one of the candidates running, one of his platform promises was, if you elect me, I will immediately begin the construction of the temple. So I, I found that was kind of fascinating. Um, but in any case, so this is an architect's rendering of the temple, which is set to go when the time is right. The other thing I was going to say, I won't get into it in great detail, you can do the research yourself. Uh, some say, well, how are they going to build the temple because you have the Muslim dome there on the Temple Mount? Uh, there's a lot of research now. In fact, people in the Temple Institute themselves say, we're not really concerned anymore because we don't believe, number one, that is the actual Temple Mount. We actually believe we're 600 yards southeast in what used to be the city of David. So they say, we actually don't even believe that's going to be a concern, that we can build the temple without worrying about what we're going to do with the, with the Muslim uh, holy place. So, in any case, just some interesting tidbits, but if you just wanted to watch the video, it's just three minutes, but again, this is put out by the Temple Institute itself in Jerusalem, which I find fascinating.
Amen. So you don't need a preacher up here with all these charts and pictures and all this stuff to convince you the Lord's coming soon? Amen? That should give you a bit of an idea. Um, so again, if you're, if you're visiting, um, if you want to catch up on what we've been teaching the last two Sundays, it's on our website, gtmoncton.com. You can go there, gtmoncton.com, and it'll take you to our YouTube channel as well, and you can look at that, and, and this morning will make a bit, more, uh, a bit more sense. But essentially what we've been focusing on is really trying to come to terms with just when in the sequence of events uh, do we find ourselves in the church in the last days, and when in the sequence of events can we expect that the Lord is going to return for his church and do the things that we, that we talked about? We're, we're focusing on what is just a seven-year period uh, at the end of human history as we've known it, that uh, you may have heard the term the tribulation period, great tribulation period, different names like that, but it's actually referred to as Daniel's 70th week. And we'll look at a scripture here. In Daniel 9.24, God sent his angel Gabriel to Daniel with a prophecy that related specifically to Israel. And I'm reading it from the Good News Translation, just a little bit easier to understand the wording. But this is what uh, what the angel said to Daniel regarding Israel. Seven times 70 years, okay, 490 years, is the length of time God has set for four things to happen. For freeing your people and your holy city from sin and evil so that sin will be forgiven and eternal justice established, so that the vision and the prophecy will come true, and that the holy temple will be rededicated. Now, as we mentioned last time, the first 69 of those 70 weeks, we know, were fulfilled when the anointed one, Daniel says, was cut off. In other words, we believe it means that the day that Jesus was crucified, that was the end of the 69th week. And there are people who are much more brilliant than us um, who actually figured out in the, in the chronology of historical events that that was 69 prophetic weeks or 483 years, which concluded with the death of Jesus on the cross. But yet the Bible says as well, he says to Daniel, that the end of the 70th week, which we believe is still future, that God will finish what he spoke to Daniel. So those 70 prophetic weeks are used for the purpose of accomplishing those things that we read in Daniel. And it's for that reason that some people believe that because the first 69 weeks uniquely dealt with Israel, God's people, that therefore the final 70th week must also deal exclusively with the nation of Israel. That would seem to make sense in some way, but the fact, I believe, that God will deal with Israel during that 70th week, in my opinion, as I look in the Scripture and as I look at what Jesus taught, to me, it in no way prevents him from also dealing with anybody else at the same time. Does that make sense? He will deal with Israel during that 70th week. He'll accomplish the things he said he will accomplish, but as you look at the words of Jesus, now we see this new entity there called the church that I believe coexists at the same time. The Bible says that Daniel's 70th week is going to be a time when the temporary rule of Satan is going to be allowed upon the earth in order to serve God's ultimate purpose, which he states in Daniel 12 and 10. He says, many people will be made clean, pure and spotless, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. They will not understand these things, but who will? But the wise will understand these things. And I don't want to read into Scripture what is not there, but I don't think it's a coincidence that he says to Daniel that many people will be made clean, pure, and spotless. And we know that Jesus is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's coming back for a purified bride. And I believe that those things will take place or be, be purified, will be, uh, you know, in that crucible of tribulation and particularly in great tribulation. Now, the church is not mentioned in the book of Daniel. Do we know why? I believe simply because the church did not exist in Daniel's day. That's why it wasn't mentioned. We come to the New Testament, and of course, Jesus introduces a new entity called the church. Now, I don't know for sure, and I don't want to read into it, but Daniel may actually have seen this thing of the church uh, when he was given that prophecy. We don't know. I don't want to say he did, but I don't think we can defiantly say that he didn't either because if he had seen this thing called the church, he wouldn't have understood it any more than the prophets would not have understood it and didn't understand. In fact, Daniel wrote in chapter 12, verse 8, he said, I heard what he said, but I did not understand what he meant. So whether or not the church was included in that vision, I don't know, but we certainly know that Daniel saw some things that he didn't grasp, he didn't understand. So the question is this, if the church and Israel are both present during Daniel's 70th week, 
does it mean that God's program for the church and his program for Israel are the same? And the answer, of course, is no. God will uh, fulfill the promise that he made to Israel, uh, to Daniel about Israel. And yet the book of Romans tells us that we as the church, that we are what? We are a branch that has been grafted into the olive tree. We are the branch or the church has been grafted, you might say, into the nation of Israel. We have this unique relationship. And I believe that we are also part of God's last day plans, that the two plans that God has for the church and for Israel, they are quite different. Though they all culminate, they both culminate to come into Christ as our Savior, they are different, but I believe that they overlap. And we've been looking at the time frame, so I don't think it really is a stretch in any way. Now, last Sunday, we concluded our study with the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. We mentioned the scroll that Jesus had in Revelation chapter 5. There were six, seven seals that kept it closed. And as each seal was opened, certain events were unleashed upon the earth. And I believe, if you look at the sequence of the, of the events that Jesus outlines, I believe that the rapture takes place at the sixth seal. Now, somebody might say, well, the Bible says, Jesus said, no man knows the day of the hour. We're not saying we know the day of the hour. We're just saying that when in the order of the events that unfold, when the rapture is going to take place. We can't put a date on that. We don't know. Even when we're in the midst of a time called the Great Tribulation, I don't believe we'll know exactly what day he will come, but we will have this hope. And Jesus said there were certain signs that when they do take place, you will know. In fact, that's why he said in Luke, he said, when you see these things begin to take place, what? Stand up. Lift up your heads. Have hope because the Lord is coming soon. And so I believe that the signs are there. In fact, I believe one of the reasons we know that is because the events that are described in Revelation chapter 6, they line up sequentially, I believe, perfectly with what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 24. And by the way, when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he was not speaking to Israel. He was speaking to the church. So the disciples are not the leaders of Israel. The disciples are leaders of the church. In fact, if you read Matthew 23, what does Jesus do in that chapter? He declares seven woes against the religious leaders that actually contrast the seven blessings. And again, I don't want to read into it. I just find it interesting, maybe coincidence, but the seven blessings and the beatitudes for those who are truly his children. He, he pronounces these seven woes uh, against the Jewish leaders and the hypocrisy and so on, knowing they're going to reject him. But then at the end of chapter 23, he also looks over the city of Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And now you are left desolate. Now you'll be ruined. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes across the Kindred Valley up into the Mount of Olives where he sits down with his what? disciples. And he begins to explain to his disciples the things that will take place in the last days, which I believe line up with the events shared in Revelation that deal with Daniel's 70th week. And again, he's speaking to his disciples, the future leaders of the church, which coincides perfectly with Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, in which John writes, he says that I had this vision, and he says the Father, God, gave a revelation to Jesus Christ that he was to share with his servants, who's the servants? Us. Why? So that we would understand the things that are to come, the things that are to take place. So anyways, it's a bit of a summary didn't intend to do, but I recognize some folks uh, weren't with us the last couple of weeks. So in my opinion, the rapture has taken place at the end of Revelation chapter 6, and now we come to Revelation chapter 7. Now, keeping in mind in the timeline, we don't know the day or the hour of the rapture, but it seems if you follow the sequence of events of the six seals that are unfolded, that the sixth seal is broken sometime after the halfway mark in that seven years. In other words, we don't know how long this time of great tribulation begun with the fifth seal. We don't know how long that's going to last. It may be six months. It may be two years, two and a half years. We don't know. But let's just say it's a couple years. It puts the rapture toward the end of the seven-year period, though, of course, not the end. There's still things to come after that. But it's uh, sometime after, after the midpoint. So... We come to Revelation chapter 7. The rapture has just taken place in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, what do we see? Two things. First thing we see is that God's wrath is about to be poured out upon the earth. And so we see in verse 3, an angel calls out and he says this. Before the wrath is poured out, he says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Okay, they're going to be harmed, but don't do it yet until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
And you go on to read that there are 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes that are sealed by God. So we have 144,000, okay? Just keep that number in mind. We'll come back to it. After this, in verse 9, we see something interesting. And John writes what he saw. He said, I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then one of the elders who initially asked John, John, who's this great crowd that all of a sudden appeared? Where'd they come from? John says, I don't know. You tell me. And that's what the elder says in this next verse, verse 14. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, what I believe, if you just allow Scripture to say what it says, and it doesn't mean we understand every nuance, every little detail, but I do believe we can understand an overarching uh, sequence of events. That if the rapture has taken place in Revelation chapter 6 at the very end, which I believe it has, then before the wrath of God is poured out in the first verse of chapter 8, what happens? All of a sudden, we just see this massive crowd. Who were they? Where did they come from? And the answer is very simple. These are those who came out of the great tribulation, which ties into Matthew 24. Jesus said once the Antichrist desecrates the temple that we just saw, turns his wrath against Israel, his wrath against the church, he says, then there will be a time of great tribulation, right? Because in the first four seals, he said, this will be a time of tribulation, but the end does not yet come. Then he says, now there will come a time of great tribulation, such as there has never been or ever will be. And unless this time was cut short, no one would, be, would survive. But for the sake of my elect, right, my people, Christians, right? Jesus didn't call anybody but Christians in the New Testament the elect. There were saints. We'll get to that in just a moment. He's referring to the believers. Unless the time was cut short, they wouldn't be saved. But for their sake, I will cut that time short. And I believe the grammar very simply speaks to a sudden event, which I believe is the rapture. So that's Revelation chapter 7, which is followed by Revelation 8. Right, see? It's not that complicated. You're doing great. Okay, so the seventh seal is going to be broken. Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> you did a good job. Okay, the seventh seal will be broken to release the seven trumpet, the, the uh, seven trumpet judgment of God's wrath. Again, just very quickly, we mentioned that the scroll itself contains God's judgments. So they don't happen, they don't begin to be poured out until the seven seals that keep it closed are finally broken. And when the seventh seal is broken, the scroll is open, and in chapter 8, we see God's wrath is going to begin to be poured out. But chapter 8 begins with these amazing words, at least I think they are. When Jesus opened the seventh seal, there was what? Silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, there are different interpretations as to why exactly 30 minutes, and I haven't delved a whole. Some are interesting, some have to do with Yom Kippur, with the temple, with the time frame it took the priest to minister, and all that kind of stuff. And there may be a lot of truth in that, I don't know. But I think the answer is quite simple myself. It's because God is about to pour his wrath upon mankind, the very mankind that he so loved that he sent his only begotten son to die for. Okay, I love the scripture in Ezekiel 33, 11. I'm sure you've heard it before. The Lord says this, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. In other words, I believe in any time of, God, of judgment, I mean, how many, I shouldn't get you to raise your hand because you might. Don't raise your hand. How many enjoy spanking their children? <laughs> Aren't you glad? I know some hands would have gone up. You know. Okay. But you understand what I'm saying, okay? As parents who can be fundamentally selfish and wrong, we don't enjoy doing that. And I don't believe anymore does God the Father look forward to uh, actually bringing judgment. And yet we know that he has to destroy evil. We long for that. The society longs for that. Who don't even know God. They long for the day, if at all possible, where there be no more crime, no more sickness, all those kind of things, utopia. Well, we long for that too, but that can't happen until evil is destroyed. So John writes in chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. I believe what that is very simply. And again, please look into the scriptures. I hope we're talking with these enough that it gives some clarification. If you feel that it does, I've had so many comments of people saying, Pastor, for the first time I'm understanding Revelation, it's, and it's exciting and, and all that kind of stuff. That's wonderful. But I encourage you for things that we just touch on, get into the word yourself. 
ask the Lord what it is exactly. It might be the deeper meaning of some of these things. But in any case, as I read that, I was reminded of Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, where you might remember that during the time of great tribulation, where many Christians are being killed for their faith, we have this imagery of believers under the altar of God. And what are they doing? They're crying out to Jesus, saying, Lord, how much longer before you vindicate us? How much longer, in other words, will it seem that Antichrist and the devil just has his way and he's just slaughtering your people? And the Lord says, just wait a little bit longer until the exact number that God has preordained of your brothers and sisters are going to be killed until that happens. And I believe what is happening here is the Lord is taking the incense, the prayers of the saints, that, that prayer for vindication, he's taking that incense and combining it with fire from the altar, and that becomes the wrath of God the vindication, or at least that becomes a component. And again, that's just my opinion, but I, the imagery kind of stood out to me this week as I, would stu- as I was studying. But what also spoke to me about is this. Friends, we need to be reminded that however we are wronged, whatever is done to us, God will vindicate. It's up to him. You see, that's why Jesus says, turn the other cheek. That's why he says, forgive. Why? Because we don't know how to meet out justice. We just want a pound of flesh. We just want revenge, but we don't know what to do. We don't know when to stop. So the Lord graciously takes us out of that equation. He says, listen, when you've been wronged, your only response is this, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Just like Jesus committed himself to the Father for the one who judges perfectly, didn't take it into his own hands even on the cross. We need to do the same thing. And friends, for that to happen, I believe in these last days, we need to be a people who say, Lord, I need a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit and your love. I need a supernatural love to fill my life that I can be a witness in these coming days amidst great persecution. Okay, so we're still in Revelation chapter 6. And uh, in uh, in Revelation, chapter 8 rather, in Revelation chapter 8, verse 6 through to verse uh, 19 of chapter 11, so Revelation 8 through 11, um, as you read through that, you'll see uh, talking about the trumpet judgments that contain God's wrath that are going to be poured out. And we're going to talk more about that next week, so I won't get into that. Uh, But the the trumpet judgment of God's wrath, they will end at the end of Daniel's 70th week. Now, if you're reading on ahead, you'll notice there are also seven vile judgments or bold judgments. They begin after the 70th week. About 30-day period we read about. We'll get to it next week. But during that 30-day period, I believe that's when the bold judgments are poured out. They serve a different purpose, but it's still kind of the undoing of this world system to prepare for the ushering of the millennial reign of Christ. Again, we'll talk more about that next week. But up until this point, what we see, I believe, and it doesn't mean that we understand, I don't pretend to understand everything, you know, if there's things wrong or whatever, you have questions or, or comments, feel free to let me know. But I believe, generally speaking, if we're, if we're looking at the general order of things, that we see this unfolding of events from Revelation 1 through to Revelation 10. I find they're pretty much, like we, we come to Revelation 6, the rapture. We have Revelation chapter 7, which takes place in heaven, 144,000 sealed. All these believers appear who came into the great tribulation of Revelation chapter 8. We see the trumpets, Revelation 8, 9, 10, part of 11. We see the trumpet judgments unfolding. Okay, so I think those are pretty much sequential. Could be wrong, that's my opinion. But I believe they're pretty much sequential. Now, when we come to Revelation chapter 11 to 14, this is where I find it's kind of easy to get tripped up. And it's not because I have some special insight, okay, but it's just, it's just something that I, that I, I just kind of feel um, that clicked one day, and I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so I just want to share it with you again. Uh, please go to the Word yourself and examine that. But basically, when you come to chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, I believe what you're seeing very simply in each of the chapters is you're seeing certain events. They all take place during the second half of that seven-year period. They all take place beginning uh, when Antichrist desecrates the temple. We've got three and a half years left. They all fit in there. Okay, chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, all the events fit in there. But what we see in these chapters, each chapter, is we just see certain events being taken out and expanded on. Because when you read Matthew 24 or Revelation 6, where Jesus is given this chronological order of things, he's given the order, but the events are pretty compressed. You know, the first seal's open, this happens, second seal opens, that, so on. So it, it gives you an idea, but they're pretty compressed. So when all this is taking place, all this is finished up to the end of the seventh year, it's like chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, they say, okay, now we're going to go back and expound on some things that happened during this three and a half year period. Does that make sense? Okay, and you'll see what I mean here. In fact, I made a chart 
Um, and I have them at the Welcome Center. If you want one, this is just one that I put together, um, particularly this whole middle section that kind of describes a number of things that they're not happening one after another. They're all happening at the same time. They're stacked on top of each other. They're all happening during that three-and-a-half-year period. So it just kind of helps you to visualize a little better. Uh, you can take it. You can mark it up. You can, I, I made it purposely this size because it fits perfectly in the bird cage or a hamster cage. And uh, so, you know, you can recycle it. Whatever you need, don't worry. Just out of respect, turn it upside down. But uh, in all seriousness, though, it's just to kind of help you visualize. And, and, uh, and it doesn't get really deep into every, every single thing, not to avoid it. But the intention is just kind of give us a little sense of an outline, or at least enough so that we can go into the book of Revelation and not feel intimidated or too confused. So that's there for you. Now, I've also, what I've done is kind of simplified that same diagram into some pictures that I'm going to show you now. The first slide here shows what we studied last week, okay? So it shows that the first seven seals uh, being broken open, you can see the white horse, red horse, and so on. It also shows that that seven-year period is divided into three segments, tribulation, great tribulation, and wrath. It's also divided into two halves, where we have three and a half years, which is interrupted, or the seven years is interrupted in the middle by the Antichrist desecrating the temple. We'll talk about that in a minute. So we have three and a half years at the first, three and a half years at the, at this, at the end. What other terminology you'll hear in Scripture, for example, referring to that three and a half years, is you'll hear 1,260 days, okay? That fits in perfectly with the Jewish calendar. Just, just quickly, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. Ours isn't, okay? That's why we have extra four or five days. That's why each year our days don't coincide perfectly with the Jewish holidays. It changes each year, Easter, all that kind of stuff. So there's 1,260 days on a Jewish calendar. is three and a half years. You'll also hear the phrase 42 months, which is how long? Three and a half years. You'll also hear the phrase in some translations, a time, times, and half a time, right? What's that? It's a time times, and a half a time, three and a half, okay? So they're all the same thing, different wording, but they all mean the same thing. So essentially, that's kind of what we covered up until last week, and as uh, you see in the arrow there, that's where I believe, according to the words of Jesus, that he is coming back for his church at the sixth seal. So again, if you're visiting this morning, you may want to go back um, and look at the teachings, or you may just want to walk out later and say they're nuts. <laughs> really, your call. Okay, Daniel, a uh, couple of scriptures here. Uh, before we look at these next few chapters, again, do you remember the single event that will trigger the beginning of the second three and a half years? Do you remember what the event is? Okay, let's read it again, Daniel 9, 27. The ruler, speaking of Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people, speaking of Israel, for a period of one set of seven, seven years. But after half this time, three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will put up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Okay? So we know that at the three-and-a-half-year mark, it is marked by the desecration of the temple by the Antichrist. Now, this is totally a thought that came to me once, and I could be out to left field. But I thought, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if the desecration of the temple, and this is totally subjective, okay, like most of my sermons, as you know, it's totally subjective. But wouldn't it be interesting if the desecration of the temple actually happened on the day of the temple's dedication? It may not. The temple may already be dedicated, it may be in existence. And the reason I mention that what comes to my mind is when, you remember Solomon's temple? When it was dedicated, the Spirit of God moved in and the priests couldn't stand? In the presence of God, right? Just glorious presence of God that filled the temple. And I kind of wonder, in the Jewish culture, maybe expecting the same thing to happen, but instead of the presence of the living God, right, we have the presence of the false God who comes in and actually desecrates the temple because he rules from there over the earth. It almost like he sets it up as his office. Why? Because he makes himself out to be God. That's what the Antichrist does, okay? And again, please, totally subjective, but just sometimes the way God does things is like, that's cool. And so it may or may not happen that way. But in any case, Jesus mentions this same event in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 21. He says this to the disciples. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, this desecration, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, we just read, let the reader understand. And in verse 21, for then there will be what? Great tribulation, which Jesus talked about before, 
unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Okay, so we have Revelation 6, Matthew 24, the other gospel accounts, the sequence of events condensed. And then we have in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14 of Revelation, each chapter taking particular events and expounding on them. But all these events begin at the three-and-a-half-year mark, and they last until the end of the three-and-a-half-year mark. That brings us to Revelation. Is this making sense so far? Just in the sense of chronology and so on. In Revelation chapter 11, okay, we have two witnesses who appear, and we're told they minister for the duration of three-and-a-half years. 1,260 days. Some of these I'm just going to give you some facts. I will have Scripture too, but encourage you to go to the Word and, uh, and take more time. Okay, so they're, they're, they're given a time of, of three and a half years to do their ministry. Uh, and I'm going to return to this as we come to the end because I think it really puts into context what is happening during this time when Satan's wrath is unleashed. Then we come to Revelation chapter 12. Once again, we're told the events in chapter 12, they happen over a period of three and a half years. So we know they start at the midpoint. In the opening verses, we read the description of a woman whom a dragon is trying to destroy. Verse 4 to 6. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. We're told later in the chapter that the, devil, or the dragon is the devil, Satan, trying to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, who, who, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? Jesus. Okay, if you're in church, the answer is always Jesus. Just so you know, it's either God or Jesus. You can't go wrong. If you're raised in Sunday school, it's always the same answer. Okay. So uh, rule the nation with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. When's that? Death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, right? And now he's on the throne. Okay. But the woman, what happened to her? She fled into the wilderness where she has the place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, for, provided for, kind of like the prophet Elijah, for 1,260 days. Now, we know that when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, Satan tried to kill him, right? But he didn't succeed. We know that he tried to do that. We also know that Jesus later ascended into heaven, as we just said. But I believe that this event described here, because prophecy oftentimes can have a dual fulfillment. It can have multiple fulfillments throughout human history. But I believe that this imagery also speaks of a time yet future. And I say that for one simple reason. It's because... It says that Israel is protected by God for how long? 1,260 days, three and a half years, right? If you didn't say anything about that, I could say, okay, well, then it's just, it could just be from 2,000 years ago. But no, the way he describes it, I believe, the fulfillment clearly places it in the second half of Daniel's 70th week. You see, once the Antichrist chose his true colors by desecrating the temple, he immediately begins to initiate a global holocaust of the Jewish people. And he begins in Jerusalem. And that's why when you read sometimes, I believe, uh, the gospel accounts, portions of Matthew, certainly Mark and Luke, where they talk more about Jerusalem, you might say, well, he's talking about Jerusalem. So, so I mean, isn't it just about Israel? No, I believe what he's saying very simply, he's, he's talking to his Jewish disciples too. But when this happens, it's going to begin in Jerusalem. It begins in the temple, right? So the wrath, the desecration, it begins in the temple. And what happens? It's like the bomb drops in Jerusalem. And the ripples then begin to move around the world, as we'll see here in the Scriptures in just a moment. That's only my opinion. But the distinction I see between the woman that represents the nation of Israel and the 144,000 who are sealed in Revelation 7 is that the woman herself speaks of the nation of Israel. But it may speak uh, to God-fearing Jews who oppose the religion of Antichrist. That for those who see who he is and, and, or maybe just kind of got a bad vibe from him, even though the nation of Israel signed a treaty, we know today that Israel is godless. It's primarily atheistic almost, it might say. There's Orthodox Jews, obviously, but it's not really a God-fearing nation. And so when they sign the covenant, they're just looking for peace. They're not worried about theology, just looking for peace. And so sometime in there, there's this portion of the nation of Israel that seems to speak of people... Um, that just aren't on board with Antichrist. They don't buy into his religion, whatever the case may be. And it seems like the Lord is going to protect them for three and a half years, at least from being completely destroyed. So he's going to hide her. He's going to kind of watch over her, nourish her, protect her. That's the nation of Israel, at least a large portion, because, of course, any Israelis who follow the Antichrist religion or who take the mark, 
Well, they're not going to be protected because they've made their choice, and of course, they're going to be uh, submitted to God's wrath during the trumpet judgment. So that's, that's the woman, the nation of Israel, I believe. But then we also have this, this segment of 144,000 Jews who are sealed. Uh, but what's interesting is this, I think, is it's at the three-and-a-half-year mark, dead set in the middle, right, of the seven years. That's where the woman is protected by God. Okay, because as soon as the bomb drops and Antichrist shows the true colors, he's going after Israel. God immediately moves in and protects a portion, this woman of the nation of Israel. Now, the 144,000 that we see sealed, they don't get sealed until after the Great Tribulation. It's not until after the church is raptured, before God's wrath is poured out, that now we see them, this imagery in heaven of 144,000 being sealed. So the point is simply this is that it's probably a couple years later that we have these 144,000 who are sealed. I'm not trying not to make it too complicated, but these 144,000 are also mentioned in Revelation 14. It says this, they have kept themselves as pure as virgins. And I believe what he's probably referring to is they've not bought into the adulterous religion of Antichrist. Following the Lamb wherever he goes, they were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Now, I don't believe that they're Christians at the time they're sealed. Because if they were Christians, they would have gone up in the rapture. Okay? Because we're all Jew or Gentile. We're one in Christ. Okay? So they're sealed before the wrath of God is being poured out. Um, I just want to make sure I don't ramble on too long here on these particular points so we don't, uh, don't get too distracted. Um, but the Scripture says that they are the first fruits of God and of the Lamb. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is called our first fruits, right? That means that just as Jesus rose from the grave, you know, the first fruits of the resurrection, that all of those who trust in him, we know as a guarantee that we too will be resurrected when we die. Okay, he's the first fruits of that promise. And I believe that these first fruits, these 144,000 in Israel, that basically they are a witness to the rest of Israel of God's power and of God's favor and of God's promise that one day soon, ultimately, all of Israel will be saved. God may very well use them as a witness to his covenant with Israel that he hasn't forgotten them, and in the midst of all the Antichrist persecution and lies, that they are brought back to Jesus the Messiah. That's, again, a, a, a hypothesis, but I believe it does tie into the promise that all of Israel one day be saved. Now, in chapter 12, we also read that once this remnant of Israel is protected, and again, we're going back to this midpoint, three and a half years, right? That once the, uh, Israel is protected during this time of great tribulation, verse 17 says this, Then the dragon, seeing that the woman's protected, Israel's protected, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who were they? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus which to me is clear to the church. Because you see, this has just happened at the midpoint, okay? So we have, we have the 144,000 being uh, sealed later, sorry. We have the woman, okay, being protected. The Satan is furious that he can't get at her. And so he turns, I believe, against the church, who I believe are the offspring and the same that were grafted into the, into the olive tree. Revelation 13. Again, it starts at the beginning of the second three-and-a-half-year period. Okay, Revelation 13. So the point I'm making very simply, again, is that 11, 12, 13, 14 are simply events that are drawn out and expounded on that happened during that three-and-a-half-year period. Does that make sense? You see the three-and-a-half-year period? Okay. You're thinking, I can't wait to get home and line my birdcage. Okay. So again, in chapter 13, we're starting at this midpoint, three-and-a-half years, and we know this. Why? We're not reading anything into it. The Scriptures say what it says. Because when it refers to the wrath of Antichrist, John uh, writes in verse 5, he was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, okay? This is what Jesus referred to when he said he immediately followed the desecration of the temple. He says in Matthew 24, he said, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short... No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay? And I believe the elect are all those who put their faith 
in Jesus Christ. Now, you may have heard somebody would say, well, you know, the church isn't around for any of this because you don't see the name church used anywhere after Revelation chapter 3. Let me back it up for a second. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what do we have? We have Jesus speaking, dictating to John a letter that goes to the seven churches, okay? He has something different to say to all the seven churches, and I believe it ties into things the Holy Spirit is saying to us in the church today in preparation for the things that are to come. But in any case, he's writing a letter to the churches. Um, in the New Testament, the word that is commonly used for believers is not the church anyway. The most common word for, for believers is simply the saints. The word saints is used over 60 times in the New Testament. It's used 13 times from Revelation chapter 4 on. Okay? So the saints of the church are very much present, I believe, during that time. And on top of that, uh, Jesus actually concludes the book of Revelation with these words in chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for what? The churches. Okay? So if you want to find the word whether it's churches, saints, whatever, it's there throughout the book of Revelation, I believe. It's the very same, uh, very reason, rather, the revelation was given to Jesus in the first place. Revelation 1.1, right? To show his servants the things that must soon take place. In other words, Revelation is wrapping up the same which begun. All of this is a revelation that the church may understand the things that are to take place. In fact, I should say, that's, that's simply the way that I see it. Now, what else does Antichrist begin to do at the midpoint of the seven years? Chapter 13, verse 5, it was allowed, it uses the word it because it's speaking about the beast, which, who's revealed to be Antichrist. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Okay? Now, that's consistent with what we just read in chapter 12, making war against a woman's offspring. Then we also read that the beast, the Antichrist, verse 16, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. We know the technology is there now. So that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And, of course, from that we get 666. So as we have seen at the midpoint, three and a half years at the midpoint, three things happen once Antichrist desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. Number one, he turns against Israel. Number two, he can't get at her like he wants to, so he turns his wrath all out against the church and persecutes the church, which Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And finally, at the same time, he begins to enforce his mark on the human race. If you will not worship me as God, I will make you do that or I will kill you. That's basically the ultimatum. That brings us to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, I'm not going to get into it just for the sake of time, but just on a surface level so that you can get a sense of what's going on here. Again, I believe these things are taking place during the three-and-a-half-year period. Just to itemize, we have uh, the 144,000 Jews that are sealed. They're mentioned again. Uh, we have the gospel being preached to the world. And I believe in, in context, I believe that's what the Scripture means when Jesus said that the gospel will be preached to the whole world and the end will come. What's he saying? During that three-and-a-half-year period of time when it seems that Satan is having his way, the gospel is going to be spread throughout the world. Everybody will have an opportunity to receive Christ before he comes. Uh, mankind is warned not to take the mark. We see in chapter 14, Christians are encouraged to persevere. And then you come to the end of 14, and we have two harvests. In verse 14, we have a harvest that begins with the imagery of Jesus in the clouds. He has a, a, gold, a gold crown and a sharp sickle, and he begins to harvest. And I believe that ties into Matthew 24, 31, which is the rapture. So just jot it down, read it for yourself, and you'll see it ties in because there's also a second harvest. In, in verse 17, where we see a, 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 a second harvest um, in which was thrown into the great wine press. All those who were harvested were thrown into the great wine press of God's wrath. And I believe all that is shown is very simply, once again, that the rapture and the wrath happened one after another. The harvest of believers and the wine press of God's wrath begin to be poured out upon the earth. So that's chapter 14, and if anybody wants any slides or pictures, just send me an email. I'm glad to send those to you. Okay, let's finish off with Revelation 11. I wanted to conclude with this very special event. Uh, it is to me anyway, and this is, these are just things as you read the Word, the Holy Spirit, kind of like, bang, did you, did you see that? Do you see that? And uh, these are just some of the things that excite me about the last days in which we live. In Revelation chapter 11, we see that once Antichrist turns against Israel, uh, the Bible says that Jerusalem is trampled down for 42 months by the Gentiles. Okay, that means that, you know, uh, Antichrist Gentile is kind of taken over and, and Jerusalem is no longer kind of the holy place. Jesus says this in verse 3 to 6. 
Jesus says, and this happens right at the three-and-a-half-year mark, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for how long? 1,260 days, three-and-a-half years, clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before God, that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone tries to hurt them, fire comes down from their mouths and kills their enemies. If anyone tries to hurt them in whatever way, in the same way that person will die. These witnesses have the power to stop the sky from raining during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to make the waters become blood. They have power to send every kind of trouble to the earth as many times as they want. Now, in all likelihood, these two witnesses are probably Elijah and Moses. And the reason that many people believe that is because they're given power to shut the sky, that it won't rain, what Elijah did, and also to turn the waters into blood to strike the earth with every kind of plague, which Moses did. We also know that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, you know, whether or not we're reading into that, we don't know 100%, but it seems very likely it is probably them, plus considering the way that they died, that they're probably coming back. They also represent the law and the prophets, and you can go on for a long time about them, but very likely. But my main point is this, and this is what excites me. Okay, wake up. Because if I'm feeling tired, you must be exhausted. This is what really excites me. The very moment that Antichrist desecrates the temple, the very moment that he is given authority to have power for three and a half years, the very moment the restrainer is pulled back, who, by the way, I believe is not the Holy Spirit, it's probably Michael the archangel who protects Israel, Daniel chapter 12. But that's for another day. The moment the restrainer is pulled back so that the enemy can have his way with Israel and the church and the world, at that very moment, God sends his two witnesses who have greater power than Satan has, who come in light and truth, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ with signs and wonders. And along with those two witnesses, you have a church, as Daniel says, who are purified, who are without stain or spot, who are filled with the Holy Spirit and power. And in these last days, I believe, I'm not saying we are the sickle, but I believe we are part of the ministry of the sickle of that last day's harvest because the Lord is going to take his church full of the Spirit of God, operating in the gifts of the Spirit, living holy, consecrated lives to Jesus Christ, who will not take the mark because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He is going to take his church. He is going to take these two witnesses, and he is going to insert us into everyday life in the marketplace, and we will be part of a glorious last day harvest before Jesus comes. Friends, the devil doesn't win. He doesn't win. The same God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is the same God who is not going to leave our world in darkness under the rule of Antichrist. They will always have an opportunity. They will always have a choice. The gospel he preached throughout the world. What does that mean? It means that nobody will be fooled into taking the mark of the Antichrist. Nobody will be fooled. There will be a witness to the truth to the very last moment until the Lord comes and God's wrath is poured out at the end. In fact, we see that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. Look what it says. The man of evil will come by the power of Satan. He will have great power. He will do many different false miracle signs and wonders. He will use every kind of evil to trick those who are lost. I don't believe he just has supernatural power. I believe much of what he does, it is illusionary. You look at technology today, friends, some of the news reports we're seeing, we're not far away from faces and stories being fabricated that you can't tell the difference from. Signs and wonders and all the technology we have, I believe we can easily be deceived. It doesn't mean he may not have, still have some supernatural powers, but I believe that's going to factor into it. And he says this, he will use every kind to trick those who are lost. They will die because why? They refused to love the truth. If... They love the truth. They would be saved. In other words, just like today, there will be ample signs of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will expose the lies of the enemy. It's going to be there so that everybody will have a choice. And friends, that's why I am absolutely convinced as the church in these last days, we must be a people who desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be filled with the baptism of the Spirit of God and power, 
that we also be a people who desire the best gifts, to be used in the gifts, that we be like Paul and say that when I came to you, I didn't come with enticing words of man's wisdom. I came in a demonstration of God's spirit and power that your faith would be in God, not in man. We need to be, because friends, I'm telling you this, our Christian lifestyle and, and you know, kind of a mamby-pamby, powerless Christianity it will not in any way come against or do damage to the work of darkness in these last days. We need people who operate in words of knowledge, who operate in prophetic words. You know why? Because we have a world right now by the millions that watches psychics on TV and takes their lives for gospel. We need people who can stand up and expose that and say, no, that's a lie, that's demonic. I'll tell you what Jesus says to you. I'll speak to you by the Holy Spirit. You'll know God is real. Those are the things I believe God wants us to operate in in these last days. You know, I, I hear Christians saying, I'm done. But I hear Christians saying, I understand exactly what you mean. They say, you know, it's not a, end times are not a good time to have children. End times aren't a good time to have children. I disagree. Jesus says end times are a great time to have children. Because he said in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon your sons and daughters. And they'll prophesy. And they'll move in the power of the Holy Spirit. They'll move in miracle power. They'll see signs and wonders by the Holy Spirit who lives in them. Don't you ever allow the devil and his lies to rob you of your future and your destiny and your privilege of bringing children into this world and to see them grow up as young men and women of God. They may give their lives for Jesus, but you may too. But they will live forever. And the Lord has a plan for them. Don't underestimate your children. In fact, if you're sitting beside somebody who looks viable, why don't you just look at them and say, have lots of kids. <laughs> Go ahead. Have lots of kids. If they're viable. Okay. You may want to look at somebody twice. Or it could be a miracle. But in all seriousness... Friends, that's one of the reasons why we've committed ourselves in this church. We've committed ourselves to investing in our children. We've committed ourselves to investing in our young people, not just fun programs, but to know Jesus and know his word, to operate in the Holy Spirit. I want to really encourage you to say this, this is free, but I want to encourage you in a couple of weeks' time. We have our Castle Day where our children and young people minister. Friends, Castle Day is not a day for you to take off. It's not a day for you to go visit somewhere else. It's a day for you to come and to support your children and to support your teenagers who have been preparing for weeks to come and not entertain you, but to minister by the Holy Spirit. So I encourage you to come. This place ought to be overflowing. I mean, it's full on Castle Day. And if we have probably 100, 150 people visiting on Castle Day and we're full, that means we've probably got 100, 150 people of our own people who aren't here. Okay? And that doesn't communicate a good message. We need to be overflowing on that day. Because they've come to minister. And I'm going to go a step further, and I'm going to offend somebody, but I'm going to say this because I believe it's God. If you have a choice as a parent between Sunday or any other day, between taking your kids to sports or taking them to church or to the things of God, I want to ask you one simple question. What do you think is going to equip them to stand for Jesus Christ in the days that are coming? What's it going to be? Because it's going to be too late then when your kids are walking away from God. It's going to be too late then when they say, oh, I can't stand for Jesus. I don't have strength. It's going to be too late then. Now's the time to grow. Now's the time to be serious. Now's the time, as Peter says, to consecrate the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Dedicate the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart today. When you hear the voice of the Spirit, don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to respond. Today is the day to get serious about the things of the Lord. Will you bow your head with me? Musicians, feel free to come. I'm just going to take 30 seconds and ask you this question. If you don't know Jesus this morning, but you know you felt his presence and the word of God is piercing your heart, you understand the days you're living in, and you know God is real, but you're not surrendered to him, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand real quick. I just want to pray with you before you leave this morning. We may all know the Lord this morning, but I want to give you that opportunity. Is there anybody at all Anybody at all, you don't know Jesus, and you say, I want to know Jesus this morning. I want my sins forgiven. I want to be a child of God. Anyone at all. The second thing I want to ask you to do is just stand with me. If we just stand together, everybody? The musicians, I think, they're on their way. Either way, we're good. 
I'm going to ask our young people, young adults, children, if you're here, we just come real quick. If you're a child, if you're a young adult, if you're a young person, teenager, come on, real quick. Just come real quick, real quick. You know how old you are. Here you go. Come on, real quick, real quick. I just felt this morning in preparation that we need to pray for our young people. Just come right across, guys. Come right across. I'm going to ask you some of our elders, some of our saints are up here. Edie, Michael, all you guys, why don't you come on up, Pauline, Vanessa, Shane, come on, guys. Just one straight line, one straight line, one straight line. Amen. I'm going to ask Pastor Spencer to lead us. We're going to grab your microphone, bud. And I want to ask us in just a moment just to reach our hand toward our young people. I believe many of us are going to be around for what our kids are going to be going through. But I really believe today as, as a congregation, we just need to constantly remember our young people. This is the generation, I believe, who are going to face many of the things we've read about in the Scriptures. Some of us may be gone. You know, some of them may be gone. Who knows what tomorrow holds? Some of us may be gone, but I believe many of us will be here, and I believe probably most of these, if not all, will be here, and our younger children as well. And friends, we need to be praying for them and covering them and lifting them up. So I'm going to ask Pastor Spencer to close off our service this morning and praying for our young people. I'm going to ask those just to come on up and lay hands upon them. They should all have somebody. So come on, adults. Come on up. Find somebody. Amen. If you're here this morning, just come on up. Lay your hands upon the kids. We're going to pray for them. Just commit them to the Lord. And just pray for just a radical generation that will be unashamed of Jesus, as many of them already are, but unashamed of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're taken demonic territory for the Lord. Souls are being set free. Schools are being turned upside down. Workplaces are being revolutionized just because of the presence of Jesus through these people. Amen. So those who are praying with them, you feel free just to pray right now. Feel free to speak into their lives, whatever it may be, as Pastor Spencer leads us in prayer. And if you're standing here this morning, why don't you just reach out toward them. If it's comfortable, just reach out toward them. And let's go to prayer for these young people. Hallelujah. Lord, we are living in a time that is challenging for those that are young. But I thank you, Lord, that you are raising up a generation of young people who will stand for what is right, who will stand for you. And Lord, not just in this church, but across this whole city, we cry out, for your spirit to come upon the young generation, Lord. We know that these people are going to lead the church, that are going to lead revival in this city, Lord, and then to the ends of the earth. And so today we pray a blessing upon every young person that is here. We pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. You would fill them with passion. You would fill them with a desire to serve you with everything that they have. And Lord, they would go forth into their schools, into their activities, into their friends groups, and they would declare the goodness of God, that they would share the love of Christ everywhere that they would go, that they would take their faith seriously, Lord, that they would dive into your word and they would absorb it, they would learn it, it would be written on their hearts that they would know the word that you have spoken to them and they would release that onto those that are around them. Lord, we pray that you would raise up evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets. We pray that you would raise up people who would be strong in the gift of worship, worshipers that would be so passionate to get into your presence, Lord. We pray for a release of the gifts of your spirit, Lord. Right now in this moment, that you would come, Lord, and you would fill them with your Holy Ghost. That the fire of the Lord would come down right now, Lord, over all of these young people, God. Holy Spirit, just come now into this room. We invite you, Lord. We invite you, Lord. We invite you, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing, God. Thank you for what you're doing, Lord. Release these young people into this city to speak life and to speak truth. I pray for a deeper knowledge of the core fundamentals of our faith, Lord, that we would have answers when people would question us about why we believe what we believe. Burn in our hearts, God. 